You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. How we doing today? Doing good? Hey, uh, I don't know if you guys know this or not about this place, but uh, when somebody jumps up here and says that we had three kids give their life to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we celebrate that. Am I right? Listen, that is something we celebrate, life change, and we applaud for that, and we we get really, really excited about that. Uh, One of the really cool things about Royal Company, I hope you guys are following them, I hope you're praying for them. Here in just a couple weeks, uh, they are getting an opportunity to lead uh, worship for our Nazarene Youth Conference. They're about to lead over 8,000 high school students in worship for a week in Phoenix, Arizona. It's amazing what they're doing, so give it up for them. They are doing incredible stuff. And it's fun, fun to be a part of that. Hey, uh, so a few years ago, um, Hannah and I woke up on a Sunday morning, and uh, it, it, was this, it was not a normal Sunday morning because her and I woke up very, very sick. Uh, we were going to be headed to church, we were going to do our normal church things, and both of us woke up really, really sick. It was this moment where I realized that there's no way I'm going to make it to church on that Sunday. I remember texting uh, Pastor Rick uh, before he preaches and saying, hey man, it is not going to happen, I'm not going to be there. You hate sending a text like that to your boss, you know, because they immediately, you assume that they think you're lying, right? Like, you're fine, you're just trying to skip church, right? You're not wanting to eat any more donuts and go to Sunday school. But I was really, really sick. And so I remember thinking to myself, Hannah, we have got to get some medicine. We've got to figure it out. I'm going to take a trip to Walgreens, uh, buy everything that they have in order that can make us feel a little better. So I jump in my car and I head down the road to Walgreens and I pull in and I'm just buying stuff. Dayquil, NyQuil, I mean, I'm just getting it all. Whatever I think might help, I'm putting it in the cart, all right? Don't care what the bill's going to be, right? I've got to get feeling better. I'm on my way back, and the only thing I can think about is just that I want to be home. I'm so tired of driving. I just cannot wait to get home. And I'm coming down Route 66, and I turn my signal on, and I look in my, my uh, side mirror, and nobody's there, and I just kind of start to go over because i got to get in the left-hand lane. And all of a sudden, right as I start to go over, honk, 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 I mean, scares me to death. I whip back into the right lane, and sure enough, Right there in my blind spot was a car that I did not see. And I mean, it scared me, it scared them. It was that moment of just, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. I I, should have looked, but I'm not feeling good. And so they kind of had hit their brakes, but I still needed to get over. so, So I signal again and I get over into the left lane. And as we're driving down the road, I'm looking in my rear view at the gentleman who's in the passenger seat. His wife is driving. He's in the passenger seat, and he's got two boys in the back, probably about 10, 8 years old. And they're peering over the back seat because the dad is just letting me have it. I mean, from the rearview mirror, I mean, he is just saying words that I can only imagine are taking place in the car. He is so angry. His arms are flying. Uh, With both hands, he's letting me know that I am number one in his life. I mean, both hands, just Chris, you are number one to me, you know? And I mean, I just cannot believe it. I mean, I know I made a mistake. I did not mean to do it. But he is just, he is losing his mind. I signal again because I need to turn left. And I go ahead and I get over into the left turn lane at a light. And they follow me. And at this moment, it starts to go through my mind, you know, like, 
oh no. Like he's really angry. He's still angry. And now he's tailing me. He's literally told, like, you follow him. Like, that's what's happening in my mind. And so we're stopped at the light. He's right behind me. And I'm beginning to realize that, my goodness, he's still that upset. So we turn left. They turn left with me. We're going down the road. They're staying behind me. And at that point, I'm starting to think to myself, okay, how's this going to play out, you know? Like, I didn't think this was going to happen. Like, I'm, I'm kind of hopped up on Dayquil right now. Like, I didn't plan for this. This wasn't in my uh, agenda on Sunday morning to get in a fight in the middle of the street. But my thought process started to happen. All right, Chris, you got to take out the mom first. <laughs> like that. Mom first. They fight dirty. You want to keep your hair. You got great hair. You want that to stay. Take her out first, then you go to the dad. Then you take the dad out, and then after that, you, you, you look at the kids. Spare the children, you know, if you can. I mean, they, he is continued to lose his cool. And all of a sudden, I'm just thinking, my goodness, I have really offended this guy. And we continue to drive, and it wasn't just about 100 or 200 yards later that all of a sudden, Mama turns her signal on. And she takes a right turn straight into a church parking lot. They're headed to church on a Sunday morning. Their family's loaded in the car. They're headed straight to church. And I immediately, like I wish I could say this about myself, that that I was overwhelmed with grace and compassion, but I wasn't. I immediately filled with rage. I was like, no way, you hypocrite! I signal, I turn into the second church parking lot. Now here I am going in the church parking lot. I am hunting down this Judas, all right? He's going to head to church. They have no idea who's in his midst. And I am going to make sure the whole church knows. I'm driving through the parking lot. I'm looking for his family. I'm like, no way are you getting away with this, man. You are a hypocrite. I pull right to the front. This is a true story. I pull right to the front of the church. And there he is, walking in with his family and his two kids. I roll my window down. I had an old truck, so it it wasn't automatic. I roll my window down. I said, excuse me, sir. He turns around, and the look on his face was sheer shock and terror. He looks at me like, oh, my goodness. The mom turns around. The two boys, they're standing there with the exact same expression and look. And I said, excuse me, sir, do you have a, do you have a minute? He says, uh, he, uh yes, I, I do apparently have a minute. He walks up to the car. He gets to the window. I can only imagine what he thinks is about to happen. And to be honest, I don't know what's going to happen either. And all of a sudden, this overwhelming sense of grace comes over me. Not what I had planned for. And I said, sir, I just, I just wanted to apologize to you. Back there, I, I, I looked in my mirror. I did not check my blind spot, and I just was getting home, and I was just trying to get over. And I am so sorry that I almost caused a wreck for you and your family. And he stood there with this just shocked face, mouth open. And he says, Oh, um, yeah, um, hey, you know, don't even mention it. Don't worry about it. Not a big deal at all. (laughs) 
And I said, well, I think it was a big deal, and I, I just felt like I really needed to apologize, and uh, I hope you have an incredible rest of your day, and I'm really sorry. He says, yeah, that's okay. All right, see you later. And we shook hands, and I drove away, and him and his family walked into church. You see, you and I have influence. You and I have the ability to influence people whether it's for the good or whether it's for the bad. And we are saying this week after week after week because we want us to get it as a community, that you and I have influence, that there are people that are looking to us, there are people that are waiting for us to either do good or either do bad. They want to be able to see Christ in us, and they're waiting for our actions to match that. And so as we move through this series of Influencer, the thing that I want us to know is that we have an influence on this world if we call ourselves followers of Christ. And I want us to look at the person of Jesus because you and I follow the greatest leader ever in the history of this universe. And we can learn something from him. We can find out ways to lead like Jesus. So here we are. I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12, if you have your Bible. Uh, If not, it's going to be up on the screen. Don't worry about it. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. And uh, as I chose this passage a few months ago, um, I thought it would fit the theme really well. And I did a a little bit of research on it, but I thought, man, this is going to be a great passage. I've read it hundreds of times. It's going to work out fantastic. As I started studying this passage, I quickly started to realize that it is much more complicated uh, than I had previously thought it was going to be. And the truth is, is that this passage is filled with truth for us today. And as I've been preparing, this passage has been transforming me. And I hope that as we read it together, it will start transforming us as the body of Christ. So here we go. Let me set this up real quick. Jesus is in a bad situation. He's in a tough little spot because the Pharisees, the high priests, the rabbis, the Sadducees, they are all cornering Jesus at this time and they're challenging him with hard, hard questions. They're throwing questions about scripture. They're trying to trap him in ways to live life. They're trying to talk to him about the kingdom of God. Everything they can do to try to make Jesus not who he says he is. And Jesus is caught up in this trap. And I love what Matthew says right before this passage that we're about to read. Matthew says that Jesus had just got done answering a question. And he answered it with such authority and such grace. That he said the Pharisees and the high priests, and the teachers of the law. After his response, he says, no one asked him another question again. This is who Jesus is, and this is a situation he had just come out of when he starts in Matthew 23, verse 1. And it goes like this. Then Jesus said to the crowds, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage and I've opted not to study what Moses' seat is. 
I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage and just tried to pass through what Jesus is trying to say when he explains that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are sitting in Moses' seat. Moses' seat is not a literal seat, but it is a seat to describe how much authority and how much power these Pharisees had. He's saying that the teachers that he is talking to, the teachers that he is talking about, have all the authority of Scripture. It is as if, if you sit in Moses' seat, that you have the full authority to talk about God. It is as if whatever you say, the words that come out of your mouth, are as if God had said them Himself. These are the people who are sitting in Moses' seat. You see, you and I, we have people like this in our life. Uh, you may not think about it in that way, that they're trying to be or play the role of God, but the reality is you and I both have people who sit in seats like Moses' seat. A story that comes to mind for me is uh, when I was first dating Hannah. Uh, it was kind of like one of those first dinners. I'm over at her grandparents' house, and, and I get my plate of food, and, and all of a sudden I go and I have a seat at the table, and it's this moment where her grandfather walks up to the table and stares at me, and I kind of look back at him, and it's this stare like you're in my seat. You know that feeling? You might have a chair at home, or maybe you think of your, your dad who, who had a chair that, that no one was allowed to sit in that chair because that was your dad's chair. And it was like if you sat in that chair, you could almost wield the power. Sometimes when Hannah's grandpa wasn't in there, sometimes I'd, I'd walk in, I'd just have a seat, just like to feel what the power is in the seat. We have people in our life who sit in Moses' seat. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, you know, I, I can't really think of anybody that, in my life that, you know, that has Moses' seat, then it's probably you and uh, you need to chill, you know. You need to chill out. You're stressing people out. It says this, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. You must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. You see, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Have you ever walked through life and been in a situation where somebody in your life opted to take the mistake that you made, the shame that you have, the guilt that you may carry around, and instead of trying to make it better for you, they've actually just added to it? They've actually just taken your mistake and your shame and your guilt and they've just put it on you more and so you just carry it around on your shoulders. You see, it's similar to, to when we were kids and your parents would probably look at you like you did something wrong, like you made a mistake, you did something you shouldn't have, and your parents go, you know what? It's not that I'm mad at you. I'm disappointed. It's like that little bit of extra. It's like that little bit of extra thing where it's like, it would be easier if you were just mad at me. But you're like just disappointed. And you walk away carrying that. Last night, uh, I was with a, my family and we were having a, a little gathering. 
and uh, I'm in the kitchen, and I'm doing some dishes, and my, my four-year-old nephew, Jack-Jack, was there. His real name's just Jack, but I call him Jack-Jack. And he's there, and, and earlier in the dinner, he had come up to me, and he said, hey, Uncle Chris, can I have a cupcake? And, you know, uh, that, that just speaks to me, you know? I'm like, man, I remember when I was four, just wanted another cupcake. And so I grabbed him a cupcake. I didn't ask his mama, and I hand it to him. Later that day, or later, just a few, few minutes later, I hear him in the kitchen ask his mom. He says, hey, mom, can I have another cupcake? And I hear his mom say to him, no, you cannot have another cupcake. You have had enough. And all of a sudden, Jack-Jack comes walking into the kitchen. He comes into the kitchen. I'm standing there drying a dish. And he goes, hey, Uncle Chris, uh, can I have another cupcake? I said, hey, buddy, I don't know if you can have another cupcake. He said, well, my mom said I could have another cupcake. I go, really? I said, so you're telling me that your mom said you can have another cupcake. He thought about it for a second. He goes, yeah. I go, so if I ask your mom right now, if you can have another cupcake, she's going to say yes. He goes, mm-hmm. I go, hey, Mom, can Jack-Jack have another cupcake? She goes, no, I have told him he cannot have another cupcake. I go, boy, you're lying. You are lying. I go, I cannot believe you. I said, Jack, that's lying, buddy. And he walks away just shoulders down, just like this heavy burden that he's just carrying. He walks into his mom, big tears. She grabs him and she talks to him a little bit about lying. And just a few minutes later, he comes walking back, just shoulders down, just so ashamed. And he says, Uncle Chris, I'm sorry I lied to you. I said, it's okay, buddy. Here's a cupcake. You know, (laughs) like, love that kid. You know what I'm talking about. Someone just added to your shame and your guilt. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They're willing to add to it, but they're not willing to move you to forgiveness and grace. They're willing to make it heavy, but they're not willing to lift a finger so that you can find right relationship with a loving God. And then Jesus says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garment long. I want you to know what a phylactery is. The Pharisees would carry and create these huge boxes. And in those boxes, they would wear them around the city, wear them around the town. And inside those boxes would be the scrolls of the scriptures that the Pharisees had memorized and knew. And the bigger that box was, the more holy and the more righteous and the more religious that priest would be. And he says they would make the garments that hang on their tassel to remind them to be constantly in prayer. They would make their tassels extra long so that people would know how righteous they are. You see, they love the place of honor at banquets. And the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. 
For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. And I want you to know, he's not talking about a dad. He's not talking about an earthly father. What he's referencing right here is that many people in Jewish tradition would call their teachers and their rabbis father. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven, nor are you to be called instructors. For you have one instructor, the Messiah. And lean in right here, verse 11. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, It's an interesting uh, passage uh, for me to preach on. And uh, interesting conversation in regard to this word of humility. You know, as I was thinking about this passage and thinking about this sermon, I was working really, really hard to find a story in my own life that I could talk about when it came to humility. I mean, I was thinking really, really hard. And you know, the truth is, this is the honest truth. I could not think of one situation in my own life where somebody walked up to me and said, man, Chris Holcomb, I just love your humility. I couldn't think of any situation. I mean, truly, I was like, man, surely that's happened sometime. I mean, I'm pretty great. You know? Like, there's good things about sure. No, not one story where someone walked up to me and said, man, Chris, your humility is inspiring. But you know, as I was thinking about it, there was somebody that came to my mind. There's somebody that came to my mind that has served here for so many years, 30 plus years, this person has served on staff at Bethany First Church. And that name God just kept bringing to my mind. And his name is Pastor Lewis McLean. Anybody know him? Yeah. We all agree. Pastor Lewis and his wife Rita McLean, I could not think of a better picture of people who lived their life absolutely oozing humility. It just pours from them. You have one conversation with them and you leave thinking that you are the greatest thing that has ever walked the face of the earth. It doesn't matter what you've done. Lewis is there to offer forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you carry. He's there to pray for you and care for you. It doesn't matter what meeting he leads around this place. He not only leads the meeting, as soon as it's over, he's the one cleaning it up. When I think of somebody who practices humility, if you're looking for a picture different than Jesus, but a very close second, I would say Lewis McLean is it. Humility. It's a difficult thing for us. It's hard for us to grasp. But today I got two questions for us. Two very direct questions that I feel like we have to do this work in order for us to move forward. And the first one is going to be for you personally. The second one is going to be for us as a community. So here we go. For you personally, are you willing to do the work right now? Think critically about your own life. Think critically about the way in which you live. Here we go. Do you, do I, practice what we preach? And here's the thing. Some of you might be going, you know, I don't preach. 
So let me change the question for you. Do you or do I practice what we believe? Do we really practice what we believe? And then here's the question for us as a community, as a body of Christ. Does our community at Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, do we practice what we preach? Do we practice what we believe? Do we have the kind of Christian community that is having an influence on Oklahoma City? That somebody who may not know Christ, that somebody who may not know Jesus, would look at this place and hear stories of what God is doing because they're outside of the realm of Christianity. They're outside of the religious institution, but they desperately need to know Jesus. Would they look at this community and go, man, that's where I need to go. Those are the doors that I need to walk through. That's the sanctuary I need to be in. That's the holy ground and the place that I need to be in order to know and experience the love and grace of God. Are we fostering that kind of community? I believe each one of us probably has friends and relationships with people who do not know Jesus. I believe we have friends and relationships of people who go, man, I'm not into the Jesus thing. I'm not into Christianity. I don't believe it at all. Is this the kind of place that you and I would be willing to invite our unchurched friends to come? Is this the kind of place and kind of community that you would want your unchurched friends who do not know Jesus to come and mix and mingle with your peers that you do life with and you do church with? Are you comfortable bringing them to this place? Are we fostering that kind of community? As I was preparing this passage, I became overwhelmed by the burden of this truth. And I began to get a little bit anxious about preaching it. I I would be talking to God going, God, is this Riz, you really want me to say this? Because I'm not going to lie. I think it's a word and a truth that I think needs to be spoken and preached for my own self and for us. But it's a word that sometimes can sting a little. As a pastor... I'm watching the generation before me, my generation and the generation after me. I'm watching those three generations choose to opt out of church. And as they are opting out of church, they are also choosing to opt out of a relationship with God. I'm watching these generations make the conscious choice to opt out of church. And in doing so, most of the time they're opting out of a relationship with God. And so here's where I want to go. Have our phylacteries gotten too wide? Have our tassels gotten too long? Have our robes gotten too nice? Do we have the best seat at the table? Are we trying to position ourselves to the head at the head of the church banquet? Have our rules turned into legalism? Has community turned into membership? 
has the unconditional love of God, does it now all of a sudden have some conditions on it? Grace has a few more boundaries and requirements than it once did. Has tolerance for people different than us all of a sudden had limits? Has serving come, does serving come with expectation? And does tithing all of a sudden come with a return on investment? Has the church made a change? A small shift gradually over time that has moved us to this place of institution where we have forgotten what it's like to be just outside of it. And all of a sudden we have created this us and them. And when we create us and them, I want to remind us as the body of Christ, do you know where Jesus will always be? He will always be with them. Jesus will always be with the marginalized. He will always be with the outcast. He will always be with the one who is different. The Greek word used for humble in this passage in verse 12, you can literally translate that word humble to meaning somebody who waits and serves on a table at a restaurant. You could literally translate it to meaning somebody who waits and serves at a table. I uh, waited and served tables all through college. Uh, It was a great job. Many of you would come in. I waited and served tables at Charleston. Some of you would leave great tips. Thank you so much. Some of you wouldn't leave tips at all. No, I'm joking. I waited and I served tables. I know a little bit. I got a taste a little bit of what it's like to humble yourself and to serve others. Jesus says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, practicing humility is countercultural. We live in a world and society today where it's all about you becoming number one. We live in a world and society where it's about getting yours. It's about how successful can you be? What can you do to achieve the next thing? Who can you run over on your way and path to success? That's the world that we live in. And Jesus comes in preaching and teaching an entirely different narrative. You see, Jesus had the authority to pick and choose when to stop serving people, when to stop healing people, yet time and time again, he opted to work late into the night. You see, Jesus probably could have made a choice that he could ride in on a white stallion into Jerusalem, but instead he opted to ride in on a donkey. You see, Jesus, I believe, had the authority in the midst of his disciples to just teach them about washing each other's feet. I think Jesus could have been in that room and taught on the fact that we should wash each other's feet. And then he could have instructed the disciples to go and do that for one another. Rather, he walks in and he just starts doing it. You see, and Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for you and I. 
I think about this term humility in regard to leadership. I look at Christ and I go, man, that's the life in which I want to live. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Band, you can start heading back up. As I pulled through that parking lot of that church, everything in me, every sinful fiber of my being, wanted to shout out to that guy, you hypocrites! How could you act like this? And then find yourself in this place of church. How could you act like this and then find yourself trying to be in the presence of God? And as I rolled my window down and I watched that family begin to walk through the front doors of that, God began to do something and change in me. Because I realized that just moments ago, as He was letting me have it, in just a few moments, He's going to hear a message about a God who desperately loves him, about a grace that has no boundaries, about a forgiveness that runs so deep. And I am so thankful that that church on the corner, for whatever reason, whatever it is that they're doing, is working to create a culture in which those who are outside of religious, those who are outside of relationship with Christ, felt comfortable enough to get in their car on a Sunday morning at 9.45 a.m. and make their way to a sanctuary to worship. You see, this is who I want us to be. This is who I think God is calling us to. And I think we're moving in that direction. And I begin to hear stories about how people are finding this place a sanctuary and a safe place. But I never want us to be a place that forgets what it's like to be outside of that grace. I never want us to forget that this place is not a house of saints, but a hospital of sinners who have been redeemed. And it is our call and it is our job to be a friend and a neighbor. It is not our job to defend God. It is not our job to defend our religious righteousness. God is big enough to take care of that Himself. It is our job to humble ourselves humble our opinions, humble our thoughts, humble our need to be right, humble our need to have the last word, and humble ourselves so that Jesus will be exalted through you and I. This is it. This is the freedom in this passage. You have one Father, and He is in heaven. You have one instructor, and he is the Messiah. It is who God is calling us to be. I want us to start living and leading like Jesus when it comes to humility. And I don't know what that looks like for you today, and I, I truly I don't know how to respond today.
So the response is just wide open. If you look at your life and you go, man, I've been doing this a long time and I've just kind of been missing the mark and I need to find a place for forgiveness and prayer, then I want this moment to be that. If some of you are just, are just saying, man, I just need prayer for something else or maybe prayer for how God can move in you to start living out this life of humility so that God can be exalted, I want this moment to be for you. So, Father, will you move in our hearts? Will you help us to humble ourselves like you have humbled yourself? Create in us a passion for those who are outside of faith. Create in us a culture and a community that welcomes those who are different than us. Help us not to be people who continue to tie up cumbersome burdens on people's shoulder and not be willing to lift a finger, but help us to be people who recognize them out in the world, find the burden and the broken, and do whatever it is we can to make sure they know about your grace and your love. Father, help us to respond to what you are calling us to do. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.